I want to go back to Psalm beginning in 120 because there is some, I think, very encouraging and very good news here in these next Psalms and this section of the Psalms. Uh, we have considered now for several weeks, actually, the benefits of the law of God in chapter 119 and how it can lead to peace and prosperity and happiness and, and the good things that we do need and that it is the basis of love, of God's love, uh, because that is how we express it, is by keeping His commandments, both to Him and to mankind. <coughs> and the psalmist says all the way through chapter 119 how he loves the law of God and wants to keep the law of God. But then in the last verse says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. And I think I spent a little time on that at the end of the sermon last week, uh, where we are to seek God, but the statement here is a prayer for God to seek us as well. Uh, that would be a good prayer to pray, that He would seek us out, that He would help us, that He would find us, because we have been like sheep going astray. And it reminds of Christ's words, where if there are 99 that are secure and one lost, go find the one that is lost. So we have not kept God's law perfectly, and we have in some respects gone astray from it <clears throat> in many ways, even as the sin of presumption was brought out in the sermonette. A very easy commandment to break. It's idolatry in its rawest form, presuming to be more important than we are, uh, either above other people or above God and His way of life that we sometimes break in order to fulfill our own desires. So, we all go astray like that, even though it might not be our mind, our wish, our hope. We're human. And we do not live up to His ways perfectly by any means. <clears throat> there are those, as we heard about in Romans 1 again in the sermonette, who don't want God in their lives and try to get away from it. We on or by contrast, do want God's way, or we wouldn't be here. <clears throat> We're trying to do what's right, and yet the Spirit is willing and the flesh is weak, and we have our difficulties with our human lives. So that's the complaint he had there at the end of that long chapter on the law of God. Now let's pick it up in 120, because... We have some timed prophecies here that have to do with today and with the church, uh, in a larger sense perhaps the nation, but uh, especially the church. So he has just completed the thought that he had gone astray like a lost sheep and wants God to seek him out, for I don't forget your commandments. They're ever present with me, but sometimes I don't keep them the way that I ought to. So, this creates what? Frustration and distress. And he addresses that next at the beginning of Psalm 120. In my distress, I cried to the Eternal, and he heard me. Now, he cried out there at the end of the last chapter, Please, attend to me. Please hear me. So, he says, in this distress, and we in the church well understand the distress that the church is in, how it has splintered and fallen apart and still is in disarray and is in fact still dividing and splitting and people are still giving up here and there 
are wandering about, not hearing a strong voice to tell them what needs to be done. Well, there is a lot of that. So, the thing to do in that distress is cry out to God and hope that He hears. And in this case, it's a positive, He did hear, He will hear. Deliver my soul, O Eternal, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. Now, we had lying lips and deceitful tongues in the church, which led us astray, and we had to depart from that. We've had to find solace in the Scriptures and find direction and guidance in the Scriptures. And now we have a nation of politicians that are filled with lying lips and deceitful tongues. And they are very quickly destroying this nation of people and doing it on purpose. Because, as it says in Jeremiah, Jeremiah, our king or our leader, will give his hand to sell us out. And that is exactly what is happening in Washington today. So we need delivered from what is coming down in the nation and in the world. We'll get into that in more detail, as I said, perhaps uh, in the next sermon I give, unless I feel led a different way on that, but it's, it's in my mind to do. So he says, please deliver me. This is one of the hymns we sing as well. You'll notice the, the similarity. It's rearranged a little bit in the hymn, but same chapter it came from, same verses. What shall be given to you? Or what shall be done to you, you false tongue? So we have lying false tongues, and what's going to happen to them? We are going to suffer from those lies and that deceit. We already are, to a degree. And when we have some of these programs coming down from Washington, like the health care situation, if it does indeed come to pass, we will suffer from the lies that have been told us. <clears throat> the Supreme Court has already told us that they were lies. So what will be given to them? What will happen to these false tongues? Sharp arrows of the mighty with coals of juniper. A sharp arrow from a bow is a very, very destructive weapon. And what is being done to this nation is a very, very destructive thing, even as what was done to the church with the arrows of the leaders and the mighty within the church did great damage. Now, if you'll recall, when I did the uh, Minor Prophet series, how long has that been? 13, 14 years, 15 years ago now? I talked how this was first to the church, and then what happened to the nation. And the things that happened to the church now indeed are coming to fruition and fulfillment in the nation. We have seen uh, all kinds of financial difficulties, job losses, and things are getting more difficult. <clears throat> Inflation is occurring. When you calculate the cost of driving somewhere and back now, it's staggering compared to what it was two or three years ago. And just in the fuel alone, I'm glad I have a car that gets nearly 40 miles to a gallon. Or just It's incredible what it costs to go somewhere. So, 
the sharp arrows of the mighty and the burning coals, the hot coals that we have to walk on, are coming to pass, and it is going to get very rapidly now, I think, far worse than what we are dealing with. So far, this is pink toothbrush. It hasn't drawn much blood. It isn't that serious, but it's about to become very serious. Woe is me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. I think that's a statement that I'm living in a Gentile world. Meshach, according to ten, uh, Genesis 10 verse 2, is from Japheth. Uh, and isn't it Japheth in a way that we're dwelling with? We see things made in the Orient all around us. Japan, China, Thailand, uh, you know, on and on and on it goes. And our land has become Chinese, if you will. Uh, more and more and more. Everything around us, everything you buy is Japan or now increasingly China. They're beginning to do the bigger stuff too, like motorcycles and cars and so on. Not just the little stuff. Woe is me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. Again, a Gentile area. So here we are, I think in the original promised land. We are, have been the tribe of Israel, ruled over by a Babylonian government in a even geographical area that is not part of the United States, except by corporation, but not part of the United States of America. It's separate, has its own land, and it rules over us. So here we are in the land of Israel and yet ruled over by a Babylonian system, a system that does what? Crushes anything that is before it and makes it into slaves. And we have been living in this throughout the entire time of the end-time church, over 70 years now, just as the early New Testament church lived under a Gentile Roman government, and then the church was what? Squashed by Rome. The apostles were killed by Rome. We are going to be doing or having the same situation come down upon us, where this Roman or Babylonian Government and it's a combination of a lot of things from the past. It all goes back to Satan and his way and his rule. And it doesn't matter whether it's the Romans, the Greeks, or the Germans, or whoever it is. Uh, they're all doing it Satan's way with death and destruction and subjugation and slavery. So here we are dwelling in this land that is increasingly not the home of the free and the land of the brave. It is time to revise the national anthem. It is not the land of the free, and we certainly are not brave. We're not standing up against what is going on. So, things have changed decidedly. And here is a complaint and a woe that is uh, established because of that. We'll see down here as we go on a little bit further that it's talking about now. This isn't something that was written thousands of years ago. Uh, this is a, for, for that time. It's a prophecy for today. My soul has long dwelt with him that hates peace. All of us now have grown up, were born, since 
Herbert Armstrong learned the truth since the end-time work began. So we have long dwelt or dwelled in this situation, and it is coming down on us now in crushing fashion as they prepare to take us into slavery. America will be destroyed. We won't go into that in detail now, but here we are dwelling, wanting peace among those who hate peace and create war all over the world and are going to create yet another war or two soon. It isn't over yet. I am for peace. We want peace. We'd love to have peace in the church. We'd love to have peace in the nation. We'd love to have peace in the world. I am for peace, but they are for war. And they are going to create more war. So now we find ourselves in this circumstance, end of Psalm 120. A situation that we see no answer to based on just looking at the things in the world. If Americans wake up to what is really going on in our country, they feel so inept, so unable, so toothless, so unbrave, so cowardly, because of SWAT teams and drones and all kinds of things that are being enacted and tasered for no reason, and groped, and on and on it goes. But they see no answer. They see no way out. And they become very, very frustrated, and they start preparing a little food and buying a gun and a few bullets, and that's not going to save them. It's not going to do it. So there is, essentially, no answer. We would have peace, but they are for war, and they will get their way. Now, let's go on. What should we do? I, he says, will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. Now, I think that even geographically that means a hilly, or from other scriptures, mountainous area, where God will physically protect and we could put a lot of scriptures in here to underline that and to prove it, but we've been there before, and I don't have time today to go there. We will again at uh, some time in the future. But I will look to the hills, to the mountains, if you will, from whence comes my help. So help is going to come. And remember when it says to flee, those who are in Judea, when we see the abomination of desolation set up, it says flee to the mountains. I will look to the mountains for the help that I need. So hills, mountains, depending on what scripture, but elevation, if you will. And how does that help come? My help comes from the eternal, which made heaven and earth. Could you get any better help than that? That's the best help there is. He who made heaven and earth. There is only one escape from what is coming. And that is to trust in God who made the heaven and the earth and to follow His plan, His uh, exit procedure, if you will, when all this stuff starts coming down in earnest. He has provided in Scripture a way to escape it. 
So the help does come from the Eternal which made heaven and earth. It will be the only way of escaping what is coming. He will not suffer your foot to be moved. He that keeps you will not go to sleep. He's going to take care of you. Now that was promised back in Psalm 91, which we've already been through. But now we're on the verge of it happening. And this section of Psalms is projecting us into it. And how that God is going to protect us at this time. And we'll see the timing here in a moment. So he's not going to go to sleep on the job. He that keeps you will neither slumber nor sleep. He knows exactly what's going on. And if you're following his ways and praying and overcoming and seeking his will so that you might be accounted worthy, then he says you can escape these things that are coming down. But you've got to follow his way, his plan, his purpose. You can't do it by prepping as they say. A preppy used to be something that went to an Ivy League college, I guess, but now a prepper has changed. As somebody who's preparing food and ammo and escape routes that they think will save them when all this comes down, because believe it or not, there are people in this nation, apart from God and apart from this Word, who see what's happening and know that this is coming upon us very soon. So they're doing all they can, from a human standpoint, to get ready for it. This isn't something now that is being heralded or proclaimed by the church only. There are other people who see it. Now, some of them are Protestants and have some idea of some God. But they don't understand the Scriptures the way we understand the Scriptures. And many of them are godless entirely. But they see the signs of the times. They know it is at the doorstep. The eternal is your keeper, verse 5. The eternal is your shade upon your right hand. He will keep us from the trouble that is about to break out. A shade on your right hand is something that protects you from the sun, from the heat, and there is going to be a great deal of heat. I mean emotional, uh, physical, all kinds of pressure and heat, because heat is symbolic of something that can hurt and destroy and burn. So God will be a refuge, in other words, a shade at your right hand, right there, right with you. <clears throat> and I think it's important to get that thought. The shade on your right hand is very close to you. God is not going to be far away at this time. He is going to be close, right with you. Take care of you. The sun shall not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. Now that's in one sense metaphorical. How does the sun smite you? How does the moon paddle your behind? Uh, it's, it's metaphor, yes. But what he's saying there in that metaphor is whether it be by day, nor whether it be by night, you will not be smitten. You will be protected day and night. The sun is symbolic of the day, the moon of the night, even as he says in Genesis where he created them. So, day and night, God will be there at our right hand to take care of us if we are serving and obeying him and are come worthy in his view 
of being protected from what is coming. The Eternal shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Now that tells me in one verse that he's talking to this end time people, this end time church. Because from this time forth and evermore goes from the beginning of physical protection of the church and his people on through to the resurrection and thenceforth forevermore. Now, you couldn't read that back in David's time when this was written and say that God was going to protect them from that time forth and evermore. It wasn't long after that that Israel went into captivity again. David still had all kinds of problems. He did die in his own bed, but he had his own family and people in the kingdom trying to kill him. And all kinds of evil and hard things have happened to Israel since that time. And Israel is about again to go into captivity and become slaves of the New World Order. We are not going to be part of the New World Order. I hope we understand that. The United States is not. Because the beast and the great whore, the church, the, the, the military and the uh, religious arms of the New World Order beast will destroy the great whore. And we are that, Ezekiel 16 and other scriptures which we went through in detail in the series on Babylon. The United States is going to be completely destroyed. Its people taken captive, except those few whom God protects when the time comes. So the New World Order is going to be established without America. They will get rid of it. They hate it. They're trying to destroy it from without and from within as we speak. And they're getting very close to doing that very thing. And God will have to preserve our going out and our coming in from this time forth and forevermore. It will not again come upon us. Even when the true Jerusalem is made desolate by the abomination of desolation. It says, let them which be in Judea, let he who hears understand what this is talking about, flee to the mountains. So, from the time God begins to protect us to do his end time work, to build his temple and the walls of Jerusalem for Daniel 9, God will protect us from this time forward and evermore. And Luke 21 says that this generation will still be alive, at least the old people, as Haggai says, until Christ returns. So the protection, the living through, will be from this time forth and evermore. So Psalm 121.8 cannot be talking in its final fulfillment of any time but now. This is it. How could it be worded that way and be referring to any other time in the history of man? From this time forth and evermore. 
The early New Testament church was essentially destroyed. A few perhaps survived because he said the church wouldn't die out, and I think that there are a few who kept the Sabbath and holy days even through the Middle Ages. They're very hard to trace and hard to know who the true Christian truly was, and they even came across a few of them as pilgrims who were still keeping some of those things. But essentially, the church was destroyed, and God did not protect it from that time and evermore. But he says he will this time. Now, not every individual. We already know how, when, where, and so on. The two witnesses will die. But the church itself is going to be protected. So individuals, yes, can die and can be killed, but not very many. Because those who are worthy to escape are going to be protected. That's just the way God has laid it out. So this is an end-time prophecy we're reading. I want to establish that so that we can better understand how it applies to us as we go on through this section. So God is hearing this distress cry of the last verse of 119 and the first verse of 120 and showing us how he's going to fix this, how he's going to take care of us. Now let's go to 122. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go into the house of the Eternal. Our feet shall stand within your gates, O Jerusalem. Now see how that ties in with Haggai and Zechariah and Daniel 9 and Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and numerous other scriptures through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and the Minor Prophets. God says, I'm going to take a hand, and from this time forth and evermore, you will be taken care of. And then the next chapter starts talking about where and how this is going to happen. He gives us a detailed plan here. And it echoes the same story as Haggai and Zechariah and other scriptures. I was glad. Now, we are frustrated to some degree, because all these things we've read about through the Scriptures have not yet come to pass for us. But he's saying, when it gets this dangerous, and I have to intervene and take you by the hand, here's what's going to happen. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Eternal. God says he's going to renew and rebuild his temple. He will draw the remnant from all over the world and bring them to Jerusalem. I think the true Jerusalem as opposed to what I have come to see as a counterfeit. And there they will be filled with hope and joy. Won't it be a glad time when they say, let's go into the latter temple, the house that God is building, the new church that has come out of the dregs of the old? I say new as opposed to old. Haggai calls it the former and the latter. Same thing. The former was under Herbert Armstrong. The latter will be under the two witnesses. And all the remnant of God's people coming together to build Jerusalem, to build the temple. I think both physical and spiritual. And we'll get into that fairly soon into the future, I think, uh, as the research goes on. And there are some very new and exciting things I think I've come to see uh, that will help lend credence to the ideas that we have brought forth so far. But none of that today. 
Our feet shall stand within your gates, O Jerusalem. Now, we know that Zion and Jerusalem in Hebrews 12, 22, and 23 are referring uh, in a, to a spiritual temple. And, indeed, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the church itself is a larger fulfillment of the temple thought. So we are individually a temple of God that His Spirit dwells in. And we as a church are indeed a greater fulfillment of that in numbers as the temple. And that has to be put back together, made from the remnant of the former temple, which was larger, but which was not spiritually what it ought to be. And we have to do better and be involved in and included in, then, the latter temple, which will be stronger spiritually than that which came before. That's why we are working on ourselves to be filled with God's Spirit and to follow His ways instead of the ways of this world. So we will stand within your gates, O Jerusalem, in terms of the spiritual church, but I think within the gates of physical Jerusalem as well. So it is a dual fulfillment here. Then he says, Jerusalem is builded as a city that is compact together. Now, on a spiritual level, the church has been centered in the United States, secondarily Canada and England, Australia, and on down in smaller groups in different countries. But in the latter temple, they are all going to come, the remnant of faithful, to one place. Haggai makes that very clear. So, this echoes that. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together. In other words, unified in one area, not scattered all about the world, but coming together to the two men who will lead the end-time church. So, it's speaking of physical bodies coming to other physical bodies as their leaders, just as Haggai lays out for us. So it is builded, compacted together, unified. Now it does say that it will be a series of villages as well, but they're not going to be scattered all over the world. Zechariah 2.4 says that it will be villages with people and men. God does not like cities in the first place. He makes that very clear. Woe to those that build house to house and city to city, so that a man has no room. So he intended mankind not to live together in urban centers. That's something that Nimrod and man and Satan like to do because of control. But it isn't God's way. So even though we will come together to form one body, one temple, we're still not going to all be in one little spot. It'll be compacted into one area as opposed to the whole earth, if you will. But then if Jerusalem is to be builded, and an order goes in Daniel 9 to build Jerusalem, the abomination is set up uh, about a year and a half later, 70-week prophecy. We won't go into the details of the 69 and the 70 and all here, but in other words, from the time that the order, not the temple, but Jerusalem itself to be built, the wall about it, uh, then the abomination will be set up a year, roughly a year and a half later. 
So it will be built compactly together as a church and in one area as a city. Whether the tribes go up, the tribes of the eternal, to the testimony of Israel. Uh, that is interesting that all the different tribes of Israel, wherever they may be, may be, and the different branches and congregations of the church are going to be brought into one area, the original area, where God said His name, and they will go up there to give thanks to the name of the Eternal. So he's starting a process there, as he said, that is going to go forth this time and forevermore. So this coming together is the last coming together of the church of God in this age. Then it will mushroom into the millennium once the bride comes back after the honeymoon with her husband on the sea of glass. That's the way it's described here, as we've seen it in other places, haven't we? For there are set thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Now, doesn't he tell us in Ezekiel 34 that here in the end time, when all this stuff is coming apart and the ministry is not doing what it ought to be doing, that he will send leaders who will do it like David did? David's still in his grave, but these are end time prophecies. So they're going to come with the same spirit and attitude that David had to take care of God's people when they come together. So there'll be proper judgment. Didn't we see last week when we talked about the fast there in Zechariah 7 and 8, that one of the things he told us to do was exercise true judgment, right? So he's talking about that right here. When the church begins to come together, there will be proper judgment rendered. We don't get true judgment in our land today. It is sick from the head to the foot. And there is no justice in the land. If you go to court expecting justice, don't. Because you're probably not going to get it. The lawyers and the judges will conspire against anything that is true and right and godly. So they will be against us no matter what. But, within Jerusalem being compacted together, the coming together of God's people, there will be offices, thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of David. A throne simply uh, meaning offices or positions of authority. That's what a kingship was. Now, they may call our leader today a king in uh, Jeremiah. Well, he thinks he is, but uh, nonetheless, we don't have that office in our land. President is essentially the same thing. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love you. That echoes a scripture in Isaiah, what is it, about 61, I'm thinking, somewhere right in there. Uh, pray for Jerusalem, all you that love her. Uh, 60, 61, or is it 64? Somewhere right in there. It uh, expresses the exact same thought. Well, the Jerusalem in the Middle East today is not a place of peace. There is constant warfare and bickering and fighting between the Palestinians and the so-called Israelis, uh, the Edomites, essentially, who dwell there. 
and there is confusion and frustration and warring between the Protestants, the Catholics, and the Muslims. It is not a place of peace. Now, I think where the true Jerusalem is today is a perfect place of peace. No one lives there, and they don't fight there, because there's no one there to fight. Now, when God begins to draw His remnant together, there are going to be people coming in from all over the world, and then we could have problems again, right? Because where you got people, you got problems. Peaceful it is today. But we will need to pray for peace when thousands of people start coming from all over the world to meld their backgrounds, languages, ideas, prejudices. All those things that are human are going to have to be blended together into peace. So we do need to pray that time for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love you. Well, Jerusalem, in this form, is going to prosper. God has promised His blessing upon it. Peace be within your walls, and prosperity within your palaces. For my brethren and companions' sakes, I will now say, Peace be within you. Now, was he understanding some things, as David did, about the kingdom of God to come? Was he even perhaps projecting forward, or did God just inspire it to be written this way? But when this was written, the psalmist could say, I will now say, even though it may not yet have occurred, peace be within you. So it is a prophecy and a projected blessing. And God has underlined in other scriptures that that will indeed be the case. Peace be within you because of the house of the eternal, our God, I will seek your good. So the house of God is the temple of God, is the people of God, who will be gathered in the true Jerusalem. And God will seek our good. He will not hide His face from us any longer, but He will be our shade at our right hand. Emmanuel will dwell with us in some respects. I don't know whether we should say Jesus Christ at this point or not, because it says that means, or Jesus means, uh, God is salvation. Emmanuel means God with us. Now, I think He is with us to one degree or another, but he is not with us yet in the sense of Zechariah 2 and 3, where he says, I'll, I will come and dwell with you. I will turn my face to you. I will take careful care of you. We are still subject to this Babylon around us and the influence of Satan and his demons. The culture, the society, and everything that is bad still influences us here to one degree or another. But God is going to make a separation and a difference. And because of the temple of the church of God, our God will seek our face, or seek our good. Seek to do for us, to help us. These are very encouraging scriptures right through here. I just, I love this section of the Psalms. 
because they echo Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the Minor Prophets, and really the whole Bible. So let's go to 123. Unto you lift up, or lift I up my eyes, O you that dwell in the heavens. That's the posture we take. When all this starts coming down in the world and in this nation, we'll lift our eyes to the heavens. That's where we have to look. I don't know when we will turn to God with our whole hearts. I don't know how bad things will have to get before we do that in terms of our health, in terms of problems that we may be facing of various kinds, the plagues of Egypt, if you will, that hit this nation and that we are a part of until God makes a separation. We have always preached that, expected that, and believed it probably would happen because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then when we start having trials and troubles, we think, well, God must have just forgotten about us. No, He hasn't forgotten about us any more than He forgot about Israel and Egypt. He knows we're here. We just read how He's attentive to us. He knows exactly where we are. He knows exactly what we're going through. And He has not exactly delivered us yet. But He will. I believe that with my whole heart. Because that's what the Scriptures say over and over. And that's what they say right here. We have no reason to be discouraged. We have reason to be greatly encouraged in that we will have more trials, troubles, and difficulties as this thing gets closer. And then, somewhere along the line, we will finally... Turn to God with every molecule in our bodies and minds. Because we will know that the only deliverance is going to have to come from above. And I think God is going to allow us to imbibe of some of this until we get desperate. I think our trials and our troubles will get worse, not better. Did anyone hear that? They got worse and worse in the land of Mitzrayim until God made a difference. Then Israel pleaded for deliverance. Then people said, we will turn to Moses and we will turn to God. They realized a desperate need because they were going to die like all the Egyptians around them. And we are in the same position today where this is about to be unleashed, and without God's protection and help, we would die like the Americans around us. But God says, you will find me when you turn to me with your whole heart. And I have been preaching that for many, many years now because many, many scriptures say it. And you know what? I have not yet turned to God with my whole heart, and neither have you. We haven't done it, brethren, and I don't know what it's going to take. Satan turning the heat on us, our physical health 
getting worse and worse. Financial troubles. I don't know what kind of troubles. Maybe all kinds of troubles. We may wind up eating old canned goods one of these days that we've laid under the beds. Why would we do that? Precisely for the reasons I'm talking about. Do we expect a paved street and a, and a soft bed all the way through this? I don't know about that. There are too many precedents in the Bible where before God delivered, He let His people go through a lot. Remember the book of Acts and how they had so, such drought and famine in the New Testament church in Jerusalem, probably right up here, so that food had to be sent from elsewhere and they had to pool all their resources, sell everything they had, and bring that to the apostles so that they might distribute it carefully so that nobody would starve and everybody would get something. It's pretty bad when you have to reach that point where you pool all the food and dole it out. That happened in the Old Testament, and it happened in the New Testament. Why would we think it would not happen now. Why would we even think that? I'll tell you why we would. Because we are coddled, mollycoddled, spoiled, used to everything almost we want, sloppy, lazy Americans. That's why we wouldn't think it would come on us. We're a lot like the people around us who are spoiled, rotten. And if we can't take care of ourselves, we expect the government to do it. If we can't find a job and feed ourselves, we expect the government to do it. That's the way America is today. If we can't afford health care, we expect the government to do it. We have been taught by the society around us that we are not to feel any pain. If we feel pain, give us a handful of pills. I can't stand pain. Anything. We've got to escape pain. Physical, emotional, spiritual. Americans can't stand pain. There's been a lot of pain since Adam and Eve were in the garden. There was a lot of pain and the captivities God sent Israel into. There was a lot of pain in the New Testament church when there was martyrdom and all the apostles were killed except John. There's been a lot of pain. So why could we possibly begin to think that we would escape all the pain? Let's be realistic here. We live in a fantasy land in this nation today. Better than any other nation or people probably has ever had it in the history of the world. But because of our desire to escape pain and to enjoy things that taste so good to us, that are full of chemicals and garbage, we get pain. Because we destroy our health with the garbage we eat. 
And even here, we may be doing a little better, but we persist. Do you think God is going to let us out without pain? Do you think all those pills you take to hide your physical discomfort are going to be there forever? No, they are not. All these pills and all these potions and all these procedures are going to go away. And if you are dependent upon them, you are going to face pain. That's the way it is. That's the way it's going to be. So how much pain will it take for even us to go through who understand the truth before we make the changes we need to make? before we turn to God with our whole heart. You know, your prayers are a whole lot more uh, beseeching, a whole lot more sincere, when you're hanging upside down over a well, than when you're fat, dumb, and happy. It is pain and chastening and difficulty that causes us to repent. And God is going to get you and me to turn to Him with our whole heart. And I don't know what it's going to take. I've turned some since I was in Worldwide. I've turned some since last year or ten years ago. But I don't kid myself that I've turned to God with my whole heart. Why do I still think and do some of the things I still think and do if I have? Why aren't my prayers more beseeching? And I find it easier to pray and to study than I do to waste time doing something else. It's because I'm not wholehearted. And I don't, from the heart, put God very first every day of my life. i got to admit it. Don't do it. Sorry. I'm trying to be your spiritual leader. But your real spiritual leader is Emmanuel in heaven and his father. And they're the only ones that are perfect. I can only warn you and me about the way things are and what we need to do about it. So we need to pray for the peace within our own walls. And we need to be positive about it. And help each other up instead of being negative about how bad things are or how people are in the wrong attitude around here or whatever approach we want to take to be negative. Get over it! We're the people of Almighty God. And He has called us out of this world to be like He is. And if God called these people right here in this room and on this telephone... He wants them to be part of His remnant and part of His end-time work, and they are the chosen, set-aside, sanctified people of God. And you'd better get your tongue off of them. Is that clear? Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and if you accuse the brethren, you're just like Satan. I don't know how to put it any plainer than that. We need to pick each other up around here instead of putting each other down. 
I don't think it's as bad as some of us might think it is, but we still have room for improvement. But the loudest part of what it was just said is for those who do put doubt and who do criticize and who do find fault. And they're not making the godly judgment that God would make, and that's why he tells us in Zechariah 7 and 8 to change it and to execute true judgment. Righteous, holy, uplifting judgment. And that's what set me off here. Let's see. It says we'll lift our eyes to him that dwells in the heavens. And I don't know what it will take until we do that with the kind of wholeheartedness that he is talking about. It's easy to tell ourselves, I'm doing okay. It's somebody else that's the problem. No, we're all the problem if there's a problem. Behold, 123 verse 2, As the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the eternal our God until that he have mercy upon us. Just as people look to others who have their lives within their care, we will look to God. A servant has nothing unless his master gives it to him. So he looks to his master for food, for warmth, for shelter. And as a maid looks to her mistress, someone who works for someone who has something and they don't have anything themselves, so they look for all those things that are needed. So our eyes wait upon the eternal our God. We wait patiently until he gives us deliverance from our trials, our troubles, our tribulations, our sicknesses, until that he have mercy upon us. So we pray for mercy. We pray for forgiveness. We forgive and show mercy to one another so that he will then grant us forgiveness and mercy. And he says he won't unless we do. So if you insist upon holding things against people around here, or having grudges, or staying angry, or remembering their slights or their mistakes, and bringing them up from time to time, then you're not doing what this says, and you will not receive the mercy of God. I believe Anatoth is properly named. It is an answer from God. But in the same chapter, it talks about some rebellious men of Anathoth. I hope I don't know any of those. I hope I don't. I hope that if there are attitudes, they are gotten over. And you know what? There are. Every one of us has attitudes from time to time about the church, about each other, and especially about Daryl Henson. Somebody told me I hadn't thought of it. Said, you're the most talked of person around here. Said, well, yeah, I guess I am. Probably am. For good or for worse, I don't know. But true statement. 
Can't help but be that. Who was the person most talked about in Worldwide Church of God over the years? Herbert Armstrong. Secondarily, Ted Armstrong. Those who were the leaders. Some of it good, some of it bad. Some of it true, some of it false. But nonetheless, that's the way it was. So I guess I kind of have to wake up and realize that's the case here. I hadn't thought of that. I don't intend to be by any stretch of the imagination the center of attention. God should be the center of attention here. But in physical leadership, the things you do, the things you say, the things that people think or attribute to you, motive-wise or whatever, will be talked about. It's just a fact of life. But we need to be very, very careful how we approach one another so that when we pray, have mercy upon us, verse 3, O Eternal, have mercy upon us, that we can come with a clear conscience saying, I have showed mercy to my brothers and sisters. I have forgiven them. Therefore, please show mercy on us. For we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorning of those that are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. Now, that can be from without or from within. We can have our own pride and our own ego and esteem ourselves higher than others, or we can do as Paul said and esteem others better than ourselves. How often is that violated? How much? Think about it. How much in any given group of people do people esteem others and their opinions and their needs and their value higher than their own? I would say that is a very, very rare commodity. Because we will, as human beings, given half a chance or less, put ourselves above others in our own minds, and our vanity, and our ego, and our pride leads to anger and frustration because we were not treated the way we thought we ought to be treated. Or we are not respected as we want to be respected. Or on and on it could go. The things that we feel slighted about. So, even as we accuse others of slighting us, we will put ourselves above others. That's what human ego and pride is about. We get defensive. Why? Defensivism and feeling like we're being shortchanged one way or another is rooted in and comes from pride, vanity, and ego. It is our pride that is hurt. That's why we get upset. Pride comes before a fall. We have to get rid of our pride, our vanity, and our ego. And whatever is brought against us, we need to find some element of truth in, if possible, and be guided and corrected by it rather than getting mad about it. Well, they didn't get all their facts right. I'll tell you what, anytime anybody brings something against me, they often don't have their facts right. But you know what? They probably got the right guy. Because if, they're, if that's a false accusation, I could probably tell them something else that is true. Probably won't. 
But any time we're accused of being anything less than God, they got the right guy, right? Or girl. Because we're all going to come short of the glory of God. So they may have the wrong cause, they may have the wrong facts, but why do we get defensive and proud and upset at whatever is brought? Because we are proud and vain and full of ego and self. That's why. That's what causes us to be defensive. Don't find anything wrong with me. You know, we know there are things wrong with us. We just don't want to hear about it. We just don't like to hear about it. Do you? I don't. Well, the people we talk about don't like to hear about it any better than we do. But we, we can just flippantly do it to them. But boy, if something's said about us, you know what, the, what is the, probably the most common response to that I've ever seen? Who said that? Said about like that. Who said that? I want to know who said that. Where are my accusers? Oh, we can get irate. Just because of our ego, our vanity, our selfishness. We are not truly humble in putting others ahead of ourselves if we react that way. And we all do it from time to time. I have, you have. So, when we pray, have mercy upon us, O Eternal, have mercy upon us, we need to think whether or not we are having mercy upon one another, forgiving and loving one another. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorning of those that are at ease. Some are at ease. I'm okay. I'm doing all right. I don't have any need of anything, really. I'm rich and increased with goods. That can be from within, or it can be the scorning and the hate of the world, which we have not seen really yet, but we'll see in the near future. So, from within or from without, the scorning of those that are at ease and with the contempt of the proud, those who would thus set themselves above us. We can set ourselves above one another, and it can come from without as well we will suffer the contempt of the proud of this world. So God is saying here, He's going to put this all together, and He's going to bless us. And he's going to bring people from all over the world, and there's going to be true judgment. There's going to be peace within the latter temple. He says there in Haggai 2, I will bring peace in this place. So God has got it all worked out. But when we turn to him wholeheartedly, however that comes to pass, as we've discussed, he is going to bring peace. And we're going to live together in peace. We might as well start now, hadn't we? Because when trouble comes, and it is already coming upon us in terms of health and other trials and problems, as it gets worse, we will finally begin to turn and plead repeatedly, as it says here in verse 3, Have mercy upon us, O Eternal, have mercy upon us. And then at some point, when our attitudes are where He wants them, He is going to do just that. 
And He is going to turn and bless us and shine His face upon us. And there will be happiness and joy and peace. Now, we need to be working toward that goal right now. Because this is a prophecy that is a now prophecy. It's going to happen in our lifetime. So let's stop there today. I think that's a good place.